Well, we are continuing with our studies of Psalm 119. We're on the next to last stanza, which is verses 161 through 168. Uh, as we have studied this psalm, the fact that the psalmist is in a hostile environment has shown up over and over again. And this stanza, it shows up only in the first verse of the stanza, but I believe that that gives us a context for the rest of this stanza. We've also noted that the psalmist regularly prays to the Lord about whatever's going on around him, whatever's going on in his life. Well, there's prayer in this stanza as well. But what's interesting is this, this stanza does not include any petitions from the psalmist. He's not asking for anything. Instead, he's talking about what's going on in his life, and I think you could say in answer to his previous petitions, what God has been doing in his life. And then we also see in this verse a continuation of the psalmist speaking of the, the value of the scriptures. And prayer and the word of God really were the most effective and uh, helpful tools that he had to actually deal with the circumstances he was in and to, uh, uh, to walk, continue to walk with the Lord. So go ahead and read for you Psalm 119, verse 161 to 168. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Well, from verse 161, we see this first point that's on your outline, and that's this. The context for this stanza is the unlawful persecution the psalmist endured from the civil magistrates. We see from the very beginning here of how the ways of God are opposite, contrary to the ways of the world. Because God is pleased when his people live in ways that honor him. But he disciplines us when we sin against him. On the other hand, the world often persecutes Christians for their faith, persecutes them for their pursuit of godliness, the very opposite of what God would do. Well, the psalmist is experiencing this, experiencing this persecution, he says, from multiple princes in the culture where he lived. He says he's being persecuted without cause. Uh, in other words, he's done nothing wrong. In fact, we have seen all through this psalm that he has been very intent on honoring the Lord, on doing the right thing, on holding firm to what the scripture called him to be and to do. So he has continued to pursue that. So he has not done things wrong. So even though he's in constant trouble, apparently, from the civil authorities, he has no guilt. He knows he hasn't done anything wrong. He knows that he's the one who's doing the right thing. It's the civil magistrates that were acting in sinful ways. We read in Romans 13 that uh, civil magistrates are called by God to be his servants, actually to be his ministers in the civil realm. They are to punish those who do evil and give praise and encouragement to those who do right. Well, these princes that the psalmist speaks of are doing the exact opposite. 
when civil magistrates do things like that, they're putting themselves in a dangerous place because God will hold them accountable. But that's the situation the psalmist is living in. He can't change what the princes are doing, but he can make sure that he's responding in the right way. And that's what the rest of the psalm is about. So we'll look at the rest of this stanza in two segments. From verses 161 to 165, we see how the psalmist understands that the the word of God is a great treasure to him and uh, gives him all he needs to persevere in his faith. And then second, in the, in the last portion from verses 166 to 168, we really see the God-honoring obedience that comes from his life as a result of what God's done in his life through his word. So our next main point is this. Even in great trials, believers can reverently rejoice at the great spoil they have in the word of God. Look again at verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. There's a very important contrast in this verse. It begins with the psalmist making it very clear he's living in a time and a place where the magistrates are persecuting him because of his faith. It would be easy to try to accommodate your beliefs, accommodate your conduct, so that the authorities would no longer come after you or be against you. But he doesn't do that, and we shouldn't either. Instead, the psalmist gives us a template on how to respond when the government is hostile to your faith. Being in that situation would make you prone to obsessing over the words and the conduct, the actions of those who are oppressing you. Be really easy to obsess over their words, to become fearful, to become anxious about what has happened, what might happen. The psalmist makes sure he doesn't fall to that temptation. The princes are strong and dangerous for sure, but instead of fearing them, the psalmist says, but my heart stands in all of your words. So it's the words of the sovereign God that he is in awe of not the words of the human governors. There is such a significant contrast here. We can either live in the fear of man, or we can live in the fear of God. You're going to do one or the other, because if we're not living in the fear of God, then we are living in the fear of man. It's, got to be, it's going to be one or the other. Love this quote from Charles Spurgeon on this verse. This is on your outline says, how little do crowns and scepters become in the judgment of that man who perceives a more majestic royalty in the commands of his God. So when we recognize just the majestic royalty there is in the commands of God, it puts the words of the kings, the presidents, whatever the authority might be, it puts their words in their, right, in their rightful place. And it was this understanding from the man of God that made all the difference in how he dealt with a bad situation. He doesn't just resign himself just to tolerate it. Instead, he puts great focus on the words of God. He's really adjusting his focus from the horizontal plane to the heavenly plane. He's adjusting his focus. And as he does that, he comes more in touch with what reality really is. He's in a difficult, dangerous situation. There's no question about that. 
but the Lord has given him a reverent joy at the bounty that he finds in the word of God. It's interesting that in verse 161, the psalmist says he stands in awe of the word of God, and rightfully so. But right after that, the very next phrase in verse 162, he says he rejoices in the word of God. So this reverent awe doesn't keep him from joy. It actually enables his joy. But it's a reverent joy. It's a holy joy. And that reverent joy is directed toward the word of his good and holy God. There's oftentimes, you know, we think of something that's holy as something that's kind of off limits, as something we shouldn't, you know, we need to stay away from. That's holy. That's separate. And there's things in the Bible where, you know, you had the holy place, holy of holies. They were not allowed to go in there except for the high priest once a year. There's things you had to keep, keep away from, separate from. He's talking about the scriptures as being holy, but not to separate away from it, to indulge in it. And as he thinks about indulging in the holy word of God, joy. He does it with joy. So in fact here then in the second part of verse 162, the psalmist speaks of his joy in the word of God as being like one who finds great spoil. The image of spoil is usually connected with the spoils that come that one wins in a war or a battle. I mean, it's great treasure and other desirable assets that someone attains because of a fight that they have won. And that in itself, when you think about the scriptures, reminds us of the great cost that so many have endured and really still endure to this day because so that we could have the Bible in our hands. There have been times just in centuries down through history when it's been illegal to possess the scripture, even if it was just a small portion of the scripture, it's illegal to possess it, to have it. There have been multiplied thousands, even millions, who have been executed because they were found with the Bible or because they were trying to translate the Bible in a way that the people in their particular region could understand it. It's good for us to remember the blood that's been shed so that you and I could have a Bible of our own. But sometimes spoil comes unexpectedly. It might be a hidden treasure that you come across maybe when you're digging in your yard or looking through a closet that you you haven't been in for a while or going through the possessions of someone who just passed away and you find something you're like, wow, where did this come from? I didn't even know this was here. And so there's a, there's a spoil, a joy, a treasure that you find. Well, for us, the Bible is great spoil. It's a treasure, and every nugget in the treasure chest is something that will enable us to live in faith and to live in victory regardless of what the trials, what the circumstances might be. I got something here to help us think about this. This may look like a jewelry case that Robin doesn't use anymore. (laughs) But it's actually a treasure chest. 
these may look like a bunch of rocks. They've just been painted gold. But they're actually gold nuggets. That's what they are. We're going to use this to help us as we think about the nuggets, the gold nuggets that we have in the scripture. And each is going to talk about five of them here. There's lots more than five. But there's five that show up in this passage that I want us to think about for a little bit. The first nugget, let's pull one out here. The first nugget is found in verse 163. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. So we see from this verse, this on your outline, by rejoicing in the word of God, believers are given the nugget of needing of, of needed clarity about truth versus falsehood. So the scriptures teach us about the importance of being honest. The ninth commandment tells us right up front, we're not to bear false witness against our neighbor. We're not to lie about them. We're not to lie to them. By the way, I should say here, this doesn't give us a license to be unkind with our words. I mean, just because something's true doesn't mean it has to be said out loud. There is a place for deference as well. But as believers, we are supposed to be people who are trustworthy. People need to be able to believe that what we say is true. In fact, the psalmist gives a double emphasis to this when he says, I hate and despise falsehood. I mean, lying is detestable to God, and it should be detestable to us too. I think this would also apply to despising hypocrisy. As Christians, we have to be committed to seeing that the things that we say with our mouths line up with the way we live our life. Otherwise, our life is a lie if it doesn't measure up. One example I think of how a culture might deal with this is um, in some cultures, and uh, I've mentioned before that Daniel is one of the ones that is suggested as who may have written this. We don't know that for sure, but there's a possibility. Well, in that culture, along with many others, the ruler of the, of the people was given godlike status. The people, therefore, were to worship their kings as gods. But that's a lie. That's idolatry. And if we love God's law, we will hate that lie. We will hate idolatry. In our culture, lies are more and more taking center stage. I'm not going to try to give you a list, but in order to get along in the culture, in some cases now, you're expected to align yourself publicly with things that you know are lies. But the great spoil that we find in the word of God tells us otherwise. The scriptures tell us that we're to hate and despise falsehood, both in our own life and in the culture at large. In place of lies and falsehood, we're to love God's law. God's law is the standard of what is right and what is true. So part of standing in awe of God's words and rejoicing in his word as great spoil is hating and despising falsehood. That's the first nugget. 
second nugget of truth is in verse 164. The psalmist says, seven times a day, I praise you. Now, I don't think he's using seven times in a legalistic way where he kind of used his watch, well, he didn't have well, he used his sundial, and kind of set things so that seven times throughout his day, he knew it's time now to praise God. It's time now to give him thanks. I really think this is the idea that he's getting across the idea that praise was part of his life all through the day. It just shows up all the time, all through the day. It was full of praise and thanksgiving. So from this passage, we see this next point. By rejoicing in the word of God, believers are given the nugget of having the praises of God pervade all the duties of their days. All the duties of their days. So because of who our God is and because of all that he does, we have reasons all day long to be praising him. Just give you a few examples. We know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. The scriptures say he fills all things. When I'm not talking about just fills all things in the earth, he fills all things in the universe. The scripture says that heavens and the highest heaven can't control him. So however high the highest heavens go, he goes further. I don't know if you studied that in science or not. But he goes further than the highest heavens. He fills all things. Whenever that pops into your head, do you think praise might be appropriate? It would be. Lord, thank you. You praise all things. What a God you are, that you fill all things. Our God is also a glorious creator. So anytime, and you've got reason all day long to notice creation. There's all kinds of aspects of creation. Creation is one of the places where we see the just the power and wisdom of God at work constantly. You see it in the sunrise. You see it in the sunset. You see it in plants. You see it in birds. You see it in the lives of insects, animals of all sorts. You see it in the daily provision he makes for us of oxygen, which we are all taking part of right now. And the fact that we actually live and move, the fact that we can actually move and really have existence right now at this point in time gives us reason to give praise and thanksgiving. And you're moving all day long. So you've got reminders all day long to thank God. When you think about all that goes into God providing you daily bread, you can come up with dozens, even hundreds of people who are responsible for that piece of bacon that was on your plate. I mean, it just goes and goes and goes when you think of all the people that were responsible for that, that God used to answer that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That's worthy of thanksgiving. That's worthy of praise. As Christians, we also need to be regularly aware of the access that we have to holy God through Christ. I mean, he is the one mediator between God and man. He is our great high priest. And if you're a Christian, you have access to to the Lord all day long. And really, that's the reason that your prayers and thanksgivings can be received. It's because they are offered through Christ. So that in itself is something to be consciously and constantly, regularly aware of through the day. There's really not a single moment in your day or in mine 
that we can't find something to praise God for. Not a moment. Way more than seven times. There's never a time that there's not something you could praise or thank him for. And if we get in the habit of doing that, it changes how you see things. It changes how you see things significantly. It really does. It changes how you see your trials. It changes how you deal with temptation. It changes how we see the challenges in our culture. It changes how we see what might be considered regular, mundane activities of our life that are part of our everyday life. It changes that. Having the praises of God pervade every part of our day is a wonderful nugget from the great spoil of the word of God. Look again at verse 164. He says, seven times a day, I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. So here the psalmist speaks of something that compels him to praise the Lord throughout the day. He says, and this is our third nugget here. He says, it's the righteous ordinances or judgments, your version may say that, of God. Now, this is a statement that's saying that God always does the right thing. He always does the right thing. And one of the applications of this is a recognition of God's providence in our life. So our third nugget from the great spoil of God is this. By rejoicing in the word of God, believers are given the nugget of resting in God's good and wise providence in the affairs of men. Baptist Catechism says this. It says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Say it one more time. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That very literally deals with every single part of your life all through the day. There is nothing left out of that. All his creatures, we qualify, all their actions. That's us. Providence reaches to that. You're alive today because of God's sustaining providence. God stops sustaining, you die. We're alive today because of his sustaining providence. The weather is a result of God's providential work. Plants live or die, not just because of how good, a, how good you are at keeping them, but live or die because of God's providential work. Those who serve in the civil magistrates in the state where we live or really anywhere in the world are ultimately there as a result of God's providence. That doesn't mean they're always doing a good job, but they're there by God's providential ordaining. History as a whole is a study of God's providence. If we can get a grip on the truth that it's our holy, wise, and powerful God who is preserving keeping it going, preserving this world, we will have reason to praise him at every juncture of the day. You ever think about electricity 
as being part of God's sustaining providence? Well, every time you flip the switch, thank you, Lord, there's electricity. You ever thank God for friction? You think about what the world would be like if there was no friction? You wouldn't be sitting here orderly in chairs. We'd be slight. You couldn't even get in. It'd be a, just to watch us try to come in the room when there was no friction. We couldn't even stand. You can't sit still. There's no friction. Thank God for friction. That's his providential work, sustaining. The properties of gasoline are preserved by God's providence. That's why your car continues to run when it has gas. God keeps gasoline working the way it's supposed to work. That's preserving. You can think of all kinds of things. This stuff is all everywhere, all the, t- all, all the time. Like I said, it changes how you see things. If you realize God's righteous ordinances are with you in every single thing that you do, every part of it. But we also keep in mind his holy, wise, and powerful preserving, not only preserving, but also governing all his creatures and all their actions. Governing, being in charge of. Now, at the same time, we need to say this. That doesn't mean that God is responsible for the sinful things that we do or other people do. Every person is responsible for their own choices, for every action, for every thought. The Bible makes that clear. But the Bible also makes clear that God is governing all his creatures. In other words, Jesus Christ is Lord in every sense of the word. Many deny that truth, of course, to their detriment. But ultimately, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I want to remind you of one more thing here as we talk about God's providence. I brought it up before and I'll bring it up again, including right now. God's providence is always designed to do good for his people, to do good for believers. Stephen Charnock said it this way. He said that God takes meticulous care to ensure our ultimate blessing. God takes meticulous care to ensure our righteous blessing, our ultimate blessing. That is a life-changing truth. And it's a truth that we have a tendency to forget sometimes. Sometimes we live and act as if God is out to get us. Uh, to make life miserable and hard and difficult. That isn't true. He's for you. He's not against you. Now, persecution, trials, and heartache of all sorts are very real. But under God's wise and holy providence, he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Working together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's a nugget from the great spoil of God's word that can enable us to stand firm even in the midst of trials. The next nugget is from verse 165. It says, those who love your law have great peace. Those who love your law have great peace. The word for peace here is shalom. 
it's not meant here to say that all of the persecution is going to come to an end. That's not the kind of peace I think he's especially talking about here. This is a peace that comes because he loves the law of God, because he delights in the great spoil of the word. So the fourth nugget is this. By rejoicing in the word of God, believers are given the nugget of great peace in the midst of great storms. This is a peace of soul. It is the peace of having a firm foundation on what you know to be true. It's the peace of being delivered from living by lies. It's the peace of having the praises of God pervade every aspect of your day. It's the peace of resting in God's good and wise providence, knowing that he's actively causing all things to work together for your good. All that gives a settledness that is not possible for the world at large to have. It's a peace in the midst of great storms. And the psalmist speaks of it as a great peace. I mean, it's beyond what one would normally expect in a time of great upheaval. Reminds me, and probably reminds you too, of Philippians 4, 6, and 7, where Paul describes a great peace. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God gives a peace to his people that surpasses comprehension, surpasses what you would think would really be possible. And it's because that peace comes only through Jesus Christ. Paul says it comes in Christ Jesus. It's only through Jesus Christ that any person can have peace with God. That's because by nature we're all sinners. Sin is rebellion against the Lord, against his word, and that means, like the Bible says, that means we're his enemies. Well, because of our sin, we are under God's judgment, God's condemnation. More specifically, the Bible says we're under the wrath of God. That's how it describes it. So there's a big problem here. We are under God's wrath, and we are acting as his enemies. That's not a peaceful situation. There's a big problem there. We need to be reconciled with God if there's going to be peace. That's what Jesus Christ accomplished for all who would believe in him. He came as a man so that he could suffer and die as a man. And as our substitute, Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins when he died on the cross. And then his resurrection completed the salvation that he came to accomplish. So all who receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord have peace with God. And that's the reason Paul, and I think even the writer here, can promise a great peace that passes comprehension in Christ Jesus. That's the only way to have great peace. So if you have great peace, then you are enjoying the benefits of the great spoil, one of the benefits of the great spoil that the psalmist speaks of. The final nugget that we're going to continue consider this morning it's from the last part of verse 165, which says, and nothing causes them to stumble. Wow, what a promise. Nothing causes them to stumble. So the fifth nugget is this. By rejoicing 
in the Word of God, believers are given the nugget of stability in life. There's going to be trials. Some of them are even spoken as fiery trials. There's going to be temptations, some of them very strong. We learn from the parable of the sower and the seed that those who have no firm root in themselves, when the trials, persecutions, deceitfulness of sin comes, they fall away. That's because they really never were truly at peace with God through Christ in the first place. So they stumble to the point of falling away from the faith. Therefore, no stability. We're all going to stumble at times because of the seriousness of trials. We're all going to stumble at times because we give in to temptation. But those who are in Christ will never finally fall away. Every true believer will endure to the end. That's what we read about in the final verses of the book of Jude. It's verses 24 and 25. Jude says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. That's true stability in life and in eternity. And that stability is one of the nuggets promised to every believer and the great spoil that is found in God's word. So if you're a Christian, these nuggets are all, all belong to you. Real ones, not just painted rocks. So he has promised you a clarity about truth over against falsehood. He makes it possible for praise to permeate every aspect of your day. He enables you to rest in the good and wise providence of God. He promises great peace. He promises stability. That's all in your treasure chest, plus a lot more. And that treasure chest should cause us to stand in awe of his word. And to rejoice in what's in there because of the benefit it is to us. Now, anyone who has this great spoil is going to see great results in their life. That's what happened to the psalmist. Look at verses 166 to 168 as we move toward our final point, which is this. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. So our final point, main point is this. The great spoil of the word of God prompts God-honoring obedience in the life of the people of God. Treasure can change your life, but not always for the good. I think almost every story I've ever read about somebody who was a big winner in the lottery, it didn't turn out well. Their life was tragic after that. So treasure doesn't always have good results. But this treasure does. 
The treasure of God's word always has good results, good consequences. It actually ends up God uses it to transform our lives so that we can actually live in God-honoring ways. So it's not a treasure just to be buried and forget about, but it has practical application use. So in these final three verses, the psalmist speaks of the obedience to God that came to characterize his life. Verse 166, he says, I do your commandments. Verse 167, he says, his soul keeps God's commandments. Verse 168, he says, I keep your precepts and your testimonies. So let's look at this in a little more detail. First, the believer's obedience is enabled by the salvation God gives. It's enabled by the salvation God gives. The psalmist's hope was not focused on being delivered from the persecution of the princes directed to him. Now, praise God, that happened at times. I mentioned Daniel as one who was a possible writer for this. There was multiple times in the book of Daniel where he was delivered from what the princes were out were doing to try to get him. David is another one is considered as a possible author for this. Well, there's multiple times David was delivered uh, from people who were, especially Saul, who were out to get him. So that happens. But here I think the salvation that's spoken of is connected with the great peace we just talked about. It's having peace with God through the saving work of the Messiah. And that's the ultimate salvation that we hope for. And it's very clear that when our hope is focused on the salvation, on this salvation of the Lord, there will be transformation in life. It is a great tragedy to see people who claim to have this salvation, but it seems to make virtually no difference in the way they live. If we hate and despise falsehood, for example, I mean, we can't be satisfied with a life that is not lived under the Lordship of Christ. Yes, there's going to be struggle, but there should be evidence that you're going a different direction than you were going before. The psalmist has reverently rejoiced in the great peace God has given him. He has reverently rejoiced in the salvation God has given him. The one true God is his God. The Lord of all is his Lord. So how does that affect his life? He says, I do your commandments. He doesn't do God's commandments in order to achieve salvation. He does God's commandments because his life has been transformed by the Lord. So now he wants to do the right thing. The commandments of God are part of the great spoil that he finds, that we find in the word of God. Then the psalmist builds on that in verse 167. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. So from this verse, we see that the believer's obedience is characterized by love. It's characterized by love for the Lord and for his word. It's only those who have hoped in the Lord's salvation who will have a joyful delight in his testimonies. Now, notice there's something of a, there's a difference here in the verse before. The verse before, he says, I do your commandments. So he's focused on making sure that he... In his life, he lives according to God's commandments. But here he adds something. Verse 167, he says, my soul keeps your testimonies. So he doesn't just feel an outward obligation, but he obeys out of love. He obeys from the heart. In fact, he says that he loves God's testimonies exceedingly. That's a deep, heartfelt affection for the Lord and therefore for the words of the Lord. 
It's an affection that God placed there when he was converted, that he places in all, in all, convert, in all converts. Obedience to God is a challenge for sure. Sin, temptation, conspire to get us to disobey the Lord. But even though obedience is a challenge, it's not a burden for the believer. Instead, it's our joy. And our true desire is to please the Lord by honoring his word. Jesus said it this way, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The two things go together. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's just heartbreaking when you see people who profess to be Christians who consciously turn away from the scriptures. They turn away from the scripture because it doesn't maybe go with the direction of the culture, so it puts them out of line. They don't like. Maybe it's something they don't want to be a part of their life, so they turn away from it from that perspective. But we have to be people who stand firm for the scriptures. I mean, it's a treasure. How do you turn away from a treasure like that that is life-changing? So we stand firm because it's the word of God. It really is. We can stand firm because it's full of great spoil. We stand firm because it's the word of God that tells us what we're to believe and how we're supposed to live. And we stand firm because it's the Lord who has placed that love in our hearts for his word. So as a result, our soul keeps his testimonies, and we love them exceedingly. The last verse of this stanza expands even further on the believer's obedience to the Lord. He says, I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. So here we see this final uh, point. The believer's obedience is motivated by the desire to please the Lord, to please the Lord in all things. And it's interesting, he uses the terms precepts and testimonies. And I think he's doing that on purpose to talk about some different aspects of the scripture. The precepts, he's basically committing himself to the practical commands of the word. The testimonies, he's talking especially about the doctrines of scripture. He loves them both. He's committed to both. It's easy sometimes to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like best and the parts that we aren't so crazy about. And I know I deal with that temptation too. But we know that the Bible says this, all scripture, the practical part, the laws, as well as the doctrine, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. It all is. We can't let ourselves get comfortable with ignoring things that we don't especially like. That's unwise to be sure. And we must also be motivated by the fact that he says, the very last phrase is, all my ways are before you. Remember how the psalmist started, talked about the persecution, and then he says his heart stood in awe. There was a reference of God's word. He's bringing that same idea here at the end as well of this stanza. Because now he's saying we're called to live in the fear of God. All of our ways, every single aspect of our lives is lived out in the full view of the Lord. Nothing is left out. There are many things that we do that other people don't see. There are many things that we say that most people don't hear. Everything that we think is just between us and uh, is just in our own mind until we, you know, say what we're thinking. But whether we say it or whether we don't, God knows every deed. God knows every thought, every word. He knows it all. All our ways 
are before him. Nothing can be hidden from God. That should help us in our fight for obedience to God and our fight against sin. It should also help us, though, as we walk through the trials of life because this tells us God is fully and completely aware of every single struggle. He's completely aware of every harsh word that is spoken against you. He is completely aware, perfectly aware of every time that a person sins against you. Every pain that you deal with in your body, he is very much aware of every single one. And through it all, he is with us. He has given us the great spoil of his word so that we can reverently rejoice in all the precious nuggets that are there. Lord, we thank you for your word. We all need help. We know we need help. There are challenges in the culture around us. There's temptations and problems and just all kinds of things all around us. There's challenges in our own hearts and our own lives, things that we deal with that really bother us. But we thank you that no matter what our particular struggle, particular trials might be, we thank you for the word of God that you've given us as a treasure. And help us to see it more and more as a true treasure, as spoil that we can rejoice in. We reverently consider it because it's your word, but rejoice in it as well because it has such relevance and such power in our lives. Lord, help us to be able to apply these nuggets of your truth, of your word, to our lives as we do, as we live through our life today and however many days, more days you give us on this earth. We all need your help. We all need your help. And thank you that you promise to help us and to give us so much that will encourage and help us all through, no matter what we're dealing with. And, of course, it all bases on the fact of having a right relationship with you of having that peace, of having that salvation that defines our relationship with you. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I have gone the wrong way so much of the time. I haven't put my faith in you. I've put my faith in myself. I've ignored you so much of the time. Lord, I, I know those things are true. But Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and I want to receive Jesus Christ as a salvation for my sin, my Savior. I want to live my life with Jesus Christ as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on the tear-off that's in your bulletin, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ.